0: Welcome back, rich girls and guys, to the Money with Katie show. I uh I have a confession to make y'all. The more I learn about money and investing and macroeconomics in general, the more I realize that I don't know shit. <laughs> so, you know, I think it's good to be regularly humbled and cut down to size, but There is one boogeyman, so to speak, that's really been tormenting the back of my mind in the months since the pandemic. And it's this idea that stocks only have crazy valuations right now because the central banks have added so much money to the system Now, that is an oversimplified way to describe what's actually happening, no doubt, partially because if you were to literally hold a gun to my head and tell me to perfectly explain what's happening, I don't actually think I'd be able to. It's kind of challenging, though, to reconcile this historic faith in the stock market and its relentless climb upward with the reality that so much new money has been added in recent years that... It almost feels like we're in the midst of something different now, that the reality we're living in is somehow different from the past and that maybe our confidence is misplaced. So let me describe in the most basic terms with a little analogy what it feels like is happening right now. And remember, this isn't necessarily perfectly accurate, but this is in my head how I'm conceptualizing it and what I really wanted to take a deeper look at today. Okay, so there used to be X dollars in the system and those X dollars were allocated across the population in cash that people were spending in properties, in companies, in stocks, whatever. So we've got this set amount of money, right? And it's changing hands and it's being invested and it's being spent. Now, imagine you inject twice as much of that amount into the same system. There's this sense that, dollars have to pool in assets, that if you add excess cash into a system, it's going to find its way into home values and into stock values and like whatever else, right? That drives asset prices up artificially because you've introduced more dollars to chase the same amount of goods and assets. That's also kind of where this idea of inflation comes into play. But the kicker is that, and this is what really concerned me, when I was researching for this episode, is that it's artificially inflating values because those those values aren't actually rising if you control for the amount of new money being added. And so in my mind, I'm like, well, it doesn't feel like that means we're headed for a crash, so to speak. It's just that all this excess cash in the system, it's almost like none of these gains were real? Question mark. So That was the fear that I was coming into today's episode with, this fear that because of quantitative easing, and that is what we'll dig into today, the stock gains that I've seen in the last couple years are basically an illusion because new money was added as opposed to the value of things actually going up. And again, this is just my theoretical conceptualization of this idea. It's not necessarily true. Same for houses that have experienced wild appreciation. And you'll almost see people arguing about this on Twitter, right? Like, Is the appreciation real? Well, it's only real because someone else is willing to pay more for it. Well, isn't that what value actually is, etc.? And the lag indicator here will be continued inflation because again, there's more money in the system. The prices of things are going to rise. So the phrase that I used earlier, quantitative easing, we uh, should probably rewind and do a little history lesson about QE. So I'm gonna need a second to prepare that lesson plan. We're gonna throw it to break. And when we come back, we will dig in to what is quantitative easing. what is quantitative easing? Sounds really fun, right? So it all kind of goes back to the financial crisis in 2007 because in 2007, the financial system was on the brink of collapse. Like, no lie, shit was about to fall apart. And so... In response to that, central banks in the U.S. and in other countries decided to use a tool called quantitative easing, or QE, to essentially inject liquidity into the system. By the way, how smart do I sound today, right? This is just mm, chef's kiss, another level. Because the Fed basically bought all the debt, the bad debt, the mortgage-backed securities that were defaulting. Right, Fed buys them. How much? About $2.1 trillion worth. So the important thing to know here is that the Federal Reserve can buy as much debt as it wants. It can create credit out of thin air, basically. That's the power we've given the central bank. And at the time, this was kind of a good thing because otherwise the economy as we know it would have literally totally collapsed because it was all propped up on this bad debt. And perhaps the most infuriating aspect about all of that was that the head honchos at the big banks that were responsible for this didn't go to prison for ruining our financial system, they just got giant bonuses and quietly resigned. Yeah, but it worked, it worked. Things got bad, but they could have been a lot worse. The big difference between how QE was used back then though and how it was used in response to the pandemic is that in 2007 to 2009, that money didn't really make its way into the money supply in the same way. It also wasn't as much, and consumer demand didn't increase that much. So anyway, in 2020, you probably received a few checks in the mail for a few thousand dollars, and the whole intent of those payments and the increased unemployment benefits and the PPP loans and all of that was to prevent a total economic meltdown. I was listening to a Tim Ferriss interview with Morgan household a few days ago, and Morgan was saying that even though we are now experiencing inflation and some other negative consequences, that if the Fed had done nothing during the pandemic, where you've got these unforeseen and biological obstacles preventing the economy from functioning properly, we could be experiencing something right now that would have been, to quote Morgan, much worse than the Great Depression. So it's complex, because on one hand, we've got what some are calling an asset price bubble, and on the other hand, we would have really been up a creek if they hadn't done anything. So buying debt is one tool that the Fed has in its toolbox to help the economy. The other tool is lowering interest rates. And both of these things fall into the realm of what's called expansionary monetary policy. Sexy. But this expansionary monetary policy has really boosted stock prices. And I would tack on home prices since the housing market is considered an asset class in America, thank you, late stage capitalism. More than it's actually really helped the real economy. That's the theory, that's the rub here. That's the crux of the issue and where I find some anxiety personally because there's this sense that real growth doesn't necessarily match the inflated asset valuations we're seeing. And I'm gonna be honest here, Monetary policy? Pretty complicated. I'm a little bit out of my depth in even discussing this and worrying about it, so I wanted to plug a little excerpt from a Politico article that I think does a really good job of explaining this, and I will link the article in the show notes. All right, this is a quote. Between 2008 and 2014, the Federal Reserve printed more than $3.5 trillion in new bills. To put that in perspective, it's roughly triple the amount of money that the Fed created in its first 95 years of existence. Three centuries worth of growth in the money supply was crammed into a few short years. The money poured through the veins of the financial system and stoked demand for assets like stocks, corporate debt, and commercial real estate bonds, driving up prices across markets. The concern being, it's a risky path that would deepen income inequality, stoke dangerous asset bubbles, and enrich the biggest banks over everyone else. He, being Thomas Honig, a kind of famed Fed dissenter, also warned that it would suck the Fed into a money-printing quagmire that the central bank would not be able to escape without destabilizing the entire financial system. Huh, all right, so uh, that's the quote doesn't bode too well for the future, right? Now, one story I came across when doing some preliminary research for this episode happened before I was born, and actually probably before you were born too, if you fit into my target demo, in the 1970s. So in the 70s, similar story. You got low interest rates. You got high demand for loans, which eventually inflated asset bubbles across the Midwest, including in heavy farming states. So the weird self-reinforcing thing about bubbles is that cheap debt encourages you to take out more loans. And as a result of everyone having more money at their disposal because of the loans, it pushes up the prices of the things that people are buying with that money. Does this sound familiar? Does this sound like 2021's housing market to anyone else? And while you would think that rising prices would discourage people from continuing to buy that thing, when that thing is perceived as an asset, people assume that it means the price is going to continue rising in perpetuity, and so they continue taking out more money and getting even more overextended to buy the thing because they take the current rise in price as proof of a future rise in price, and the whole thing is very like self-fulfilling. So when the Fed kept interest rates low in the 1970s, it encouraged farmers around Kansas City to take on more cheap debt and buy more land. And as cheap loans boosted demand for land, it pushed up land prices. So pretty textbook there. And so on the flip side of the borrowing, the bankers, their logic followed a similar path. Bankers saw farmland as worthy collateral for the loans, and they believed the collateral is only going to rise in value, right? Because it has been. This gives the bankers confidence to keep extending loans because they believe the farmers would be able to repay them because land prices are just going to keep going up, so on and so forth. This is how things escalate into an ever-intensifying doom loop. And in the 1970s, the bubbles were not just confined to farmland. The same thing was happening in the oil and natural gas businesses. So you've got rising oil prices and cheap debt, encouraging oil companies to borrow money to drill more wells. The banks built an entire whole side business dedicated to risky energy loans to pay for these wells and related mineral leases. And it's all based on the value of the oil they're assuming they'll produce. In commercial real estate, same shit. It all came to a crashing halt in 1979 and the new Fed chair comes in and he's all, I'm going to beat inflation by hiking interest rates from 10% to 20% in two years, the highest they'd ever been. And now this unleashes massive economic havoc, right? Unemployment rate hits 10%. Homeowners have to take out mortgages with 17% interest rates. You got two types of inflation being fought at this point, asset inflation and price inflation. And it all kind of stemmed from the Fed's monetary policy. So that's a scary story, obviously, but I hear that and I'm like, is that in a weird way reassuring? Because even though shit hit the fan for a hot minute, we know that the economy and the stock market recovered. Like it took a hit, but it came back. So it's resilient, right? And to make things even more optimistic we've made those mistakes before the fed likely knows right now that if they hike shit up too fast everything implodes because that's what we saw in the past but that doesn't change the fact that they're kind of in a dicey spot it's a rock and a hard place you can keep artificially juicing the economy by adding more liquidity to it but if you do it for too long and too aggressively and the real growth doesn't catch up well now you got a big old bubble Right, we're back. So the bubble that I mentioned before the break is what I think this all comes down to and why people are nervous about the stock market and housing market right now, because it feels like we're all in a spot where we're trying to determine whether we are inside that bubble right now or if things are going to be okay. And so now this is where it all comes together to tie into the conversations we were having on Instagram stories in March about wage stagnation and income inequality and all these broader socioeconomic issues that America faces right now, because it is all connected, right? Because that's the weird thing about looking at wage stagnation in America from 2000 to today and comparing it to stock market growth between 2000 and today. It doesn't even look like it's representative of the same economy. And to be clear... The stock market isn't the same thing as the economy. And I'm beginning to realize that monetary policy and Fed intervention might actually be the reason why. So remember Tom Honig, the outspoken critic and former Fed employee I mentioned earlier? He wrote a paper, ties all of this together very well. He used to dissent anytime they would propose more quote-unquote money printing, but he says, The only part of the economy that seemed to benefit under quantitative easing and 0% interest rates was the market for assets. The stock market more than doubled in value during the 2010s. Even after the crash of 2020, the markets continued their stellar growth and returns. Corporate debt was another super hot market stoked by the Fed, rising from about $6 trillion in 2010 to a record $10 trillion at the end of 2019. So Honig isn't optimistic about what American life might look like after another decade of weak growth, wage stagnation, booming asset values that primarily benefit the rich. And this was something he talked about a lot, both publicly and privately. And in his mind, economics and the banking system were tightly intertwined with American society. One thing affected the other. So when the financial system benefited only a handful of people, average people started to lose faith in society as a whole. So my thoughts here. Initially, I'm like, all right, well, it sounds like loose lending is a big culprit in some of what goes wrong. So I'm like, all right, well, if I'm not buying on margin, in other words, if I'm not over leveraged, if I'm not borrowing money to buy assets, am I lowering the chances that I'm going to get wiped out or burned if things are overvalued right now? I do think the answer to that is Yes. And also, if I'm buying stocks in companies that are heavily leveraged, as in the company itself is heavily leveraged, am I really just one step removed from the problem? So to put that another way, I may not be buying company A's stock on margin, but if company A's value is propped up by a bunch of cheap debt and they aren't able to produce revenues that can service the debt and boost profits beyond it, I'm still going to be impacted by the effects of cheap lending. And then the housing example, that's interesting too, right? Because most people do not buy homes in cash. I wouldn't. I do not want all of my money tied up in the equity of my primary residence that is not generating any income for me. So to buy property, you basically have to borrow cheap money. And as Heard in the whole bubble cycle, it does sound reminiscent of what's happening right now. And people will point to limited supply. And yes, I definitely think that plays a role. But some of these home valuations, where they're tripling in value over three years, it's not explained by a sudden extreme decrease in supply. So, Hopefully, this all serves as good context for why I wanted to talk to my guest today, Nick Majuli. I used to read Nick's blog of dollars and data every single week. And once I got enough internet clout, we became friends. So, uh, Nick just published an awesome data driven book called Just Keep Buying. I knew he would have some takes about all of this. So, Nick, welcome to the Money with Katie show.
1: Thanks for having me, Katie. Appreciate it.
0: Absolutely. It's an honor. So in your new book, Just Keep Buying, you explicitly address high valuations and the fact that some people are bigger proponents of dollar cost averaging into an investment when valuations are high because the thinking goes that, hey, this asset's overpriced. And if I buy it right now with all the money I have, I'll be overpaying. So to give us some background, can you explain the valuation metric that you are using and give us kind of some uh, an explanation of what it is?
1: Yeah, so I use something called the cyclically adjusted price to earnings ratio, or known as the CAPE ratio, C-A-P-E. And I think this is like considered the gold standard among valuation ratios. Um, It was developed by the Nobel Prize winning economist Robert Schiller. So we also call it Schiller's CAPE. There's different words for it. So basically the CAPE ratio is just the market cap of the U.S. stocks, so the price. Divided by the average of ten years of earnings. So take the earnings over the last ten years and just take the average. Why do we use a moving average? Because we want to smooth out any you know effects from the business cycle. That's basically how it works. So you take that price over earnings. That's basically it. But then you kind of you average it over ten years to get to smooth out that number.
0: Oh, okay. So on that note, ten year look back. What if we're looking at businesses that are not ten years old? Do we just take as much information as we have?
1: Yeah, so they they tried. I mean, you got to do the best you can. Like, you got if you're including those stocks in there, yeah, you just you'll take the information that's in there. You take the because if they're in the SP 500 or whatever index they're using for U.S. stocks, as they get added in, they have to then kind of maybe even backdate those earnings in some way. So that's my understanding of how it works.
0: Oh, cool. Okay, so in your research for the book, which cape ratios did you explore, and how did investors who like waited for things to go down fare?
1: Yeah, so I basically broke the cape ratio into four groups or what we call quartiles. And so you can imagine like the bottom 25%, and then the next 25 to 25 to 50th percentile, then the 50th to 75th, and then the top 25%, right? And if you actually break that out, like what cape ratio is in which one, basically the bottom 25% is like 15 and below, and the top 25% is, I believe, I think it was like 25 and above, right? If you're in the oh, top 25%, wow. something like that. It's like 15, yeah, it's it like 15 one below, and then 15 to 20, 20 to 25, and then 25 and above, right? So anytime we've been above 25, technically that's been in like the upper 25th percentile. In terms of like those who waited, I found that regardless of the CAPE ratio, those who um, waited for things to drop or kind of like slowly waited into the market because they're waiting for the CAPE ratio to come down, underperformed those who like just took the plunge and got invested. And so, obviously, yes. As cape as cape goes up, as the cape ratio goes up, the size of that underperformance is smaller. So generally, when, when valuations are higher, generally future returns are lower. That is generally true. However, by waiting, those people who generally wait to get invested end up still underperforming despite this fact, right? And so that, on average, this is the this is the general truth, right? So that's the issue. It's not that like. Oh, like, okay, cape ratio is higher, like expected returns go down. That's generally true. Like that's pretty clear in the data. The problem is if you wait even longer, like you're gonna underperform even worse, right? So that's the that's the takeaway, is not to wait around to get invested.
0: So how do you think about the valuations we're seeing right now? The last I checked, the SP was trading at 25 times earnings right now. I think the Schiller PE ratio is 36 times earnings as of the time of this recording. And that relationship to monetary policy. You'll see those charts that graph the M2 money supply to the S&P 500 as of the last few years and it it kind of looks like it maps perfectly. So, is this chart crime? Like what are we to make of this?
1: So, first off, 25 times earnings is relatively cheap relative to like even recent history. I remember it hit 30 I think in like 2017, and people were saying it's super expensive then. And so that's much more reasonably valued than it has been. So I'm like, that's a bullish signal to me. But obviously, who knows what's going to happen, right? Right. And then in terms of monetary policy, I try not to focus on it too much because I don't think it's that's necessarily predictive of market returns in the long run. Right. And I think I always come back to different examples. Everyone's like, oh, look at the M2 money supply. Look at stocks. They go up. There's this great tweet from Joe Weisenthal, right, at Bloomberg. And he says, well, look from 2014 to 2019. Over that period, the Fed balance sheet is going down, but the stocks are going up. So it's like it, just to say like, oh, just because something's correlated, I don't think it's necessarily causal. I don't think you can prove. I think it's very difficult to prove that M2 money is causing all of the asset inflation. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying that there's none going on because of that. I think that would be naive. At the same time, though, to think like, oh, it's 100% the Fed, I just it's hard for me to believe that.
0: This piece about Joe Weisenthal and pointing out that the 2014 to 2019 Fed balance sheet shrunk, yet the stock market soared. Um can you can you expand on that a little bit? I'm unfamiliar with that.
1: So Joe Wisentall had this tweet where he basically just like someone's like oh, you know, Fed look at Fed balance sheet's going up, so are stocks. And he's like, well, what do you make of this? Like, here's a counterexample. The Fed balance sheet's going down and stocks are going up from 2014 oh. to 2019. So he's basically saying, like, it's not always causal, right? Just because, like, the Fed balance sheet could be changing, I don't think it has anything to do with stocks. And sometimes it definitely does. I don't want to be naive, is what I said. Like, it definitely matters in certain circumstances. At the same time, though, like, the money supply could be going down in somewhere. The Fed balance sheet could be going down in some way. And that doesn't mean stocks have to necessarily go up. And here's my real counter here. If you really want to get into this, like, okay, everyone's like, oh my gosh, the Fed's manipulating the market. Then why are you owning the market? Like, just own the. If they're going (laughs) to shoot it to the roof, buy it. Like, what do you, are you crazy? Like, own it. Why would you not? Like, if you think they're manipulating the, all these people that are like manipulating the market, they're all all bears. And they've been saying this since like 2012, 2013, whatever. And it's like, okay, the Fed's manipulating the market, like, and you're not going to own the manipulation. Like, if you, I don't remember, I don't really believe that, right? I do think they they do affect markets. I'm not going to say that, but I'm saying- to think that they're manipulating the market ever higher higher every year, I think it's really tough to make that argument. But it's just like if they're doing it, then why aren't you owning more stock? You should be more bullish than I am, and I'm a bullish person, right? <laughs> so it's like makes no sense to me. So,
0: oh my god, it's so funny because I see the those bearish signals, like you said, or like you know the people claiming that it's a bad thing. But you're absolutely right, and that was partially the conclusion that i came to before where i was like well if we are in an asset bubble then isn't the answer to just keep buying assets like if uh, if things are going to keep getting pumped higher and higher then it sounds like that that's a sign that it's something you probably do want to be buying so but you summarized it perfectly there and a piece that you wrote recently that i enjoyed it was about how most of the small corrections that we're seeing are not the big corrections right and that when the big one comes your portfolio is probably going to be the least of your worries. And, you know, that almost sounds kind of depressing and pessimistic on its face. But in a way, it's weirdly relieving to flesh out like, hey, let's actually sit back and what is the worst case scenario? Like, can you speak to that feeling that this idea that fear is back and how your average retail investor could deal with that sense of anxiety, especially with how volatile things have been?
1: Yeah, so you want to this is a very simple exercise you can do right now to deal with your anxiety. <laughs> go to Google right now and google stock market overvalued and then just insert a year. So for example, go Google stock market overvalued 2012 or stock market overvalued 2013. And you will find tons of articles written in that year telling you why the stock market is overvalued. You can do it in 2013, 2014, 2015. Every single year there's always a reason to sell, to be pessimistic, yet the market just, you know, kept going up the whole time. So it's like it's very easy to like you know, be afraid and be worried. There's always some worry. Now it's like World War Three and it's this Russia thing with Ukraine. And there's there's so many worries. And I'm not saying one day those people are going to be right. And they have been right in the past. Right. But they're rarely right. And most of the time they're over worried. And that's this that's the record of history. Mm -hmm. I mean, we're looking at this line going up into the right since like the early 1900s. And people are still arguing like, oh, stocks aren't going to build wealth. They're not going to create, you know, businesses aren't going to have earnings, all this stuff. It's like just not true. Right. The data is just there. So I think the key for me is to ignore macroeconomics altogether and just focus more on your personal situation. So like, what can you, what you can't really change macro, right? You can't change what's going to happen in the world. What you can change is your career, your financial decisions, your family. Those are things you can actually control anyway. So if we experience another great depression, like scenario, or you said the big one, the big correction, like that's all that's going to matter anyways, is what's going on with you. Right? So I say focus less on macroeconomics and how to position your portfolio and all that and focus more. Spend your time doing something more productive. Like if you spend time trying to, let's say you have a photography business, spend more time on that and you're going to make more money than you're probably going to lose in the market or you're going to be able to save in the market by trying to make these tactical decisions. So I, I don't agree with that. So
0: Oh, chef's kiss. <laughs> it's beautiful advice. I love that. Focus on what you can control. That is That does tend to be uh what I like to come Come back to, and usually my anecdote for anxiety is just earning more money. I'm like, well, let me just get more cash in the door because then I'm going to build myself a bigger, a bigger moat or a bigger buffer. And so, my last, you know, kind of real question here your book is called Just Keep Buying. And I think that ethos is powerful in times like this where it feels like, oh, there are all these new and novel factors impacting the market. And as I described earlier, it might feel like, okay, all these valuations are sky high and maybe it's the Fed's fault. And what do we do about that? And I think what happens next at the individual level boils down to long term optimism about the US stock market in general and about the US economy in general. Like, do you, investor, believe that American capitalism works? And I don't want to oversimplify anything. And I know that that's not what you're interested in doing either, but I think you probably understand what I mean. So you do sound optimistic. You do sound like somebody that thinks, hey, we have reason to believe things are going to continue on their trajectory up into the right over the long term. So can you give me a sense of where your optimism comes from? Because I know you're not the type of person that's just relying on anecdotal evidence here.
1: Yeah, so just nearly everything I write about whether that's in Just Keep Buying or on my blog, yeah, I try to back it as much as possible by data and evidence. I don't really try to say, "Oh, well, here's just my opinion. I just think this makes sense." And there are times if I have an opinion where I don't really know the answer, I'll throw it out there. I'll say like, oh, "I'm not really sure, but here's what I think makes sense." So my optimism really comes from a place of understanding history, and I understand that, you know, most equity markets preserve and grow wealth over time. Now, of course, there are exceptions. There are plenty of exceptions. I know them, you know, Japan 1989, Greece 2008, Russia, what's going on in 2022, the market dropped 80% in like a month, right? So, Mm -hmm. but I don't think these exceptions disprove the rule, right? And so if you look at the record of history and there's like a lot of books you can read on this, you know, Triumph of the Optimist, et cetera, you'll see that like, Generally, things are up and to the right. Now, how quickly they go up and to the right, that's debatable. And how quickly humanity advances, that's debatable. But generally, I think things are improving. People are living longer. They're having better lives. We have more, you know, we're using energy more efficiently. We're trying to all these things. But there's a lot of people working on a lot of things to make us all our lives better, right? So that's why I think my favorite, you know, investment quote is fear has a greater grasp on human action than does the oppressive weight. Of historical evidence, and I'll say that one more time: fear <laughs> has a greater grasp on human action than does the impressive weight of historical evidence. And once you realize how true this quote is, it's hard to think otherwise. So that's kind of where my optimism comes from.
0: I had a lot of very eye-opening moments reading your book, and and one of them actually was—I can't remember which stock market it was. So I'm going to test your memory here of your own your own research and your own writing, but. I always was under the impression that the American stock market had performed the best of any country. I thought we were like the world leaders above and beyond everyone else. But in your book, was it Belgium? Am I making this up? What I think was I the-
1: remember, it's either, it's either Australia, South Africa, and Sweden. One, two of those three oh. are like in the top. Like I think Australia went like 20 something years without a recession or something. I can't remember the exact numbers now, but you look this up. There are like, don't get me wrong. The U S is near the top, like undeniably. Yeah. And I mean, and on absolute size, we're definitely at the top because yeah, those are much smaller economies. So like the percentage sure. change isn't as big a deal there. Um, but in, in terms of absolute size, we're definitely at the top. But yeah, there's been other markets that have outperformed us. They are rare. They happen. But yeah, if you just look throughout history, there are markets that have done better. And so to think that like you know, equity markets can't keep growing wealth is just, it seems crazy. I mean, we'd have to have like a war. If we had a nuclear war that I'm saying, it's not going to matter what your investment portfolio right. does. This <laughs> is like an upside option, right? Oh, the
0: S&P 500 is down, but my home just got blown up. So what am I more concerned about? You're not going to
1: care. Like investing in, in markets is like an upside option, right? Like really, you know, yes, we're going to probably have a bad decade. We're going to have a decade where stocks, U.S. stocks do nothing. Well, you should own international stocks, right? You should own real estate. You should own farmland. You should own other income-producing assets as well. And I kind of get into that in the book. So it's not just about U.S. stocks. And we talked about U.S. stocks a lot here. And that's because what American investors care about. But there are other asset classes out there where you can build wealth. So I say diversify, 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 you know?
0: Oh, I'm like, (laughs) say it seven more times. (laughs) diversify, please. Yeah,
1: there's this quote, they say, you know, concentrate to get rich and diversify to stay rich. And I don't love the quote, because it's like, how rich do you have to be? Yes, if you want to be a billionaire, you have to concentrate, you have to own a lot mm-hmm. of a business or something like that, a lot of equity in a, in a company. But how rich do you want to be? Like I think most people can be like decently well off and you can do that through diversification. And that's my goal. I'm not trying to make you, if you want to be a billionaire, your Just Keep Buying is not the book for you. I'll be honest with you. <laughs> but if you want to have a decent financial life and probably live the goals you want to live and kind of live out your life, I think Just Keep Buying is going to work for most people most of the time, right? Unless you have really, really fancy tastes, like, you know, you you can only find you have to own your own private jet, like, and besides those people, if you can get past that, then I think, you know, Just Keep Buying is going to help people.
0: I love it. It was such a good book. Nick, thank you so much for being here and, and lending your knowledge to the Money with Katie show.
1: Of course. Anytime, Katie. Thanks for having me on.
0: All right, y'all, that is all I've got for you this week. I will see you next week, same time, same place, on The Money with Katie Show. Our show is a production of Morning Brew and is produced by Nick Torres and me. Alan Haberchak is the director of audio at Morning Brew and Sarah Singer is our VP of Multimedia. Sam Cat is, as always, our executive chaos agent and Bean Dog is our chief of woof letting us know when the mailman comes a-knockin' during our recording sessions.